Welcome to Not A Christian Podcast. It's not a Christian podcast. It's a podcast that just happens to be Christian. In this podcast, we tell stories, we talk about life, faith, and pretty much anything else you can imagine. Now let's jump into it. Welcome back to the show. It's episode 63 of Not A Christian Podcast right here on Friday, February the 11th. And, you know, usually I'm, I'm, I'm kind of left with a moral dilemma every single week when I record these. I'll say, hey, welcome to the show. It's Friday, February, whatever, or whatever month it is. And, you know, in my mind, I'm like, that's not right because it's like two days before. But now, as I record this episode that's coming out on February the 11th, uh, it is February the 11th. It's 12.20 in the morning, and uh, I've got a cup of coffee after midnight, which only means one thing, that I procrastinated this episode a lot. So, here we are, doing this for you. Thanks for being here. I'm happy to be here. I ordered some new shoes this week from Amazon. Let's, let's talk about Amazon Prime for a second. Amazon Prime is great if you live not in the middle of nowhere. But my Amazon Prime, so I split it with my mom and my sister. It's like 12 bucks a month. So it comes out to like $4 a month because there's no reason for us to have separate accounts because you can have like a ton of credit cards, a ton of mailing addresses. Uh, so we, we all just share that thing. And it's frustrating because when I order something on Amazon Prime, my uh, parents' house is the default address, which I'm fine with. But when, when it's set on that, I order something, it's like, oh, it's going to arrive in two days. When I switch it to Alpine, where I live, it automatically turns into like a week. So what am I even paying for? Would just regular Amazon just ship at the same speed? Because I don't, I don't know how it could be slower. I don't. And I don't know why it takes eight days here where it takes two days other places. So, so what am I even paying for? What, what's, what's going on, Amazon? You want to you be a sponsor? I would take that in a heartbeat. But anyway, on Amazon Prime, I bought this new pair of shoes. So, so at first... Okay, here's, here's a shoe saga that is not at all interesting. Uh, for about a year and a half, I've had a pair of red Pumas. And those things have held up incredibly well. The only complaint I have about them is that they are made from like a, a cloth material, I guess. Like they're more of a cotton shoe rather than like the plastic and rubbers that, that make up most tennis shoes. But these tennis shoes are like super comfortable and they're made of this like canvas material i feel like they're very breathable but here's the downside of that because they're made of like cotton they basically absorb smell like a sock and every couple weeks i have to wash those things and for a long time for a long time i would i'd be smelling my shoes like i'd get in my truck in the morning to go to work and i would just have this same smell and I would get to work, I'd be sitting at my desk, and throughout the day I would catch these whiffs, and I'm like, man, I don't know what on me smells, and then one day it just hit me, like, oh, it's my dang shoes, because they're made of cotton, and they absorb smell like a sock. So now every couple weeks I have to wash them. Um, anyways, but the point I'm trying, these Pumas, I, this is my first pair of Puma shoes to ever own, and I'm a believer in Pumas, let me tell you. These things have held up so incredibly well, I've had them for, like I said, over a year and a half now. I bought them in the summer of 2020. Incidentally, I bought them on Amazon as well. So so they're just these red Pumas. Uh, they have no tears. No, nothing is wrong with them. So because of that, uh, 
I didn't want to spend like $100 on a new pair of shoes when I had a perfectly good pair of tennis shoes. But I wanted yellow shoes because I have an affinity for the color yellow. I was looking at Allbirds. They're pretty nice, but like I said, they're 100 120 bucks. I didn't want to spend that on a pair of tennis shoes when, when my tennis shoes were, were perfectly good. So I go on Amazon and I find this pair of shoes that is like this mustard yellow color. They're pretty cool. They look pretty stylish in the picture. Not going to lie. They're $28. Like they're okay. They're cheap. So they're probably going to have some things wrong with them. So I ordered them eight days ago. They got here today and I put them on and they're, they're semi-comfortable. You know, they're, they're about what you'd expect from a $28 pair of shoes. Probably not going to go running in them. Probably not going to play sports in them, but they're, they're fine just to wear kind of around comfortable enough. So I saw on the description on Amazon, they were like made in China and they were this weird Chinese brand that wasn't even a word. It was like spelled K-E-E-M-X-M or something like that. I don't know. Not even a word, the brand name, but I get these shoes and I realize they're, there's not even a brand name on them. There's no branding anywhere on the shoe. There's a little tag inside that says made in China, size, I think I ordered a size seven. You know, I'm a short guy. But the only thing on these shoes, on the tongue, there's this little tag that's not really removable per se, and it says fashion or sport. So I guess in case you forgot what shoes were for, particularly tennis shoes, you can wear them for fashion or for sport. Uh, so anyway, that had nothing to do with anything. Just, just thought I would update you on the, all the, all the shoe happenings in my life that are going on lately, which is, which is a lot, you know, I'm celebrating a year and probably eight months with my Pumas and they're still, they've still got a good year or two left in them. Uh, I've got my new shoes, but by the way, the new yellow shoes that I got from Amazon, even though they say fashion or sport on the tongue and have no branding and are semi-comfortable, they, they, they looking good. All right. I'm I'm a fan, uh, so if if you want some mustard yellow shoes that look good, uh, just hit me up. I'll send you the Amazon link. Maybe you can order them and not have to wait eight days to get them. Uh, but anyway, here we are. Uh, we've got a couple of things coming up. All right, coming up pretty soon. Opportunities that you have to show your dedication as a fan of Not a Christian Podcast. First, let me tell you about the sticker design contest. That's it. I'm having a sticker design contest and I've already had some people uh, reach out to me on social media. And so I was like, you know what? I wasn't even sure if anybody would be interested, but I've had several people message me, um, respond to polls and say like, yeah, hey, I'd like to do it. So what I'm doing is I'm turning this into a competition, right? If you would like to participate in this competition, uh, it would probably be best to send me a message because there is a, a sheet that I typed up that's got some rules and parameters on it of the sticker design contest. And it would probably just be best if you had those in your hand in front of you. So if you want to be the designer of the next Not A Christian Podcast sticker, uh, hit me up and I will send that stuff along to you. I'm excited to see what people come up with because graphic design is something that like, well, I don't even call it graphic design. I have like Canva and I do that. That's why I've done all my logo work, all my graphics, all my stickers. I've done them through there, and I think they've turned out well, but I'm excited to see uh, what an actual creative person will be able to come up with. Uh, The second thing that we have coming up is what I'm calling the Not A Christian Podcast 7 for 7 initiative. So for the first time ever in the year and four months of Not A Christian Podcast, for the first time, you have the opportunity to receive benefits for being a financial supporter of the show. 
The 7 for 7 initiative derives its name because for about $7 a month, so for $6.99 a month, you will reap seven perks for being a financial supporter of Not a Christian Podcast. The first benefit that you'll receive is a shout-out on the show. Has it always been your dream to receive a shout-out on Not a Christian Podcast? If so, my friend, I urge you to set some better goals for yourself. That is very sad. Uh, but anyway, this is just the first perk of being a financial supporter of Not a Christian Podcast. Benefit number two, and this is a cool one, you will get a new sticker or other small piece of merch three times per year, and that's where our sticker design contest comes in. Now, uh, I didn't mention in the sticker design contest, the winner will get a $25 Amazon gift card um, as well as a sticker that they designed. But but they're the only person that will get a sticker that is not a monthly subscriber. No one else will have access to these. And they're going to roll out in March, July, and November. And once they're gone, they are gone. Uh, not going to make any more. Not going to sell them or give them away individually like I have in the past. Benefit number three is a twice monthly devotional episode of Not a Christian Podcast where I'm going to pick like a book of the Bible or maybe even like a, a, a theme or a, a topical series. And on the first and third Monday of each month, I'm going to release an exclusive uh, 15 to 20 minute devotional episode of Not a Christian Podcast that kind of uh, shows a different side of things, maybe not going as, as goofy as we normally do or going as intellectual or academic as we often do um, when it comes to theology and the Bible, but a more devotional uh, message uh, for you to enjoy. That'll be on the first and third Monday of each month. Benefit number four will be an access to a Not a Christian Podcast Discord, where that's, you know, it's basically an app that's designed to unite communities of all kinds. So it's it's a messaging app, but there will also be polls and other kinds of interaction through the Discord that you can have with me and the Not a Christian Podcast community. And a part of this Discord will be you will have input on future episodes and segments, um, such as uh, future tournament brackets. You'll get to help when I seed those brackets, when I determine what's going to be in uh, the voting. You'll get a say in all that. Benefit number five, virtual group hangouts two times a year. So come and hang out virtually with me and the rest of the Not A Christian Podcast community. You know, we'll have stuff like Q&A times, maybe some games, uh, discussions, debates, lively arguments about candy corn or ketchup or whatever you want to argue about. <laughs> uh, benefit number six, you get a guaranteed spot on Not A Christian Podcast. Now, I know some of you may be uncomfortable with this. So if you want to be a subscriber don't feel like you're going to be forced to be on the podcast if you don't want to be, uh, you won't be. But if you're a financial supporter of Not A Christian Podcast, after six months of subscribing, you will have an open invitation to be a guest on the show. We can do that, could do it in person if it works out, but we could also do it over Zoom. Uh, you can do a, a single segment or an entire episode. Uh, you can play a game. You can discuss something that you're passionate about, a theological topic that you want to talk about, or you can debate me on my hot takes. So, so that's worth it right then and there. And finally, the seventh and last benefit is that you will receive a Not a Christian Podcast t-shirt after one year of being a financial supporter. And once again, this shirt will only be available to financial supporters of one year and no one else. So now that all that self-promotion is on the way, let me just say, I, would, I appreciate you guys listening 
even if you don't choose to be a financial supporter. Uh, but, but the reason why I'm doing this now is I mentioned on an Instagram live the other day, I thought about doing this a few months ago. Um, but life just got super busy. Uh, the podcast kind of went on the back burner. You know, you might remember back in the fall, there were several times where an episode didn't go out. Um, but I'm feeling really refreshed as far as the podcast goes. I'm feeling really excited about the future of the show. And, you know, this is the 63rd episode. So I think I've, I've proven to you guys that this isn't just another podcast that some dude you went to college or high school with or some dude you know from church is is starting up you know because typically how it happens is they'll get you know a couple episodes churned out in the first month uh then they'll go a couple months without uploading like i, I think i mentioned a few weeks ago that 50 percent of podcasts never make it past episode 14 um so we have blown by that mile marker um, so I hope you know that I'm serious about this. It's a legit thing. I want it to be a hobby that I have longevity in and, you know, I have no, uh, thoughts or intentions to end the show anytime soon. So, so I just want a way, uh, for you to, uh, to be able to invest deeper in the community, but also maybe a way for me to just gain a little extra income on the way. And, and the thing about it, I think seven for seven um, I think you're getting a really good deal. And of course, I'm prop I might just be saying that because I want you to, to participate in the seven for seven. Uh, but if you were going to financially support me, I wanted to, I wanted you to get a good bang for your buck. And I put together what I thought was like a fair package, uh, for that. So, uh, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much in advance. If you're going to, uh, be a financial supporter of not a christian podcast that means the world to me so yeah thank you so much just to give you a little roadmap of where we're going we're continuing the abortion series that we started two weeks ago we're going to be talking about the sanctity and the value of human life from a biblical perspective and one of the main questions we're going to be answering in this show is what does it mean to be created in the image of god and how does that relate to abortion and that's really the only segment in today's show because it takes a long time you guys know how it works thanks for hanging out with me today let's go ahead and jump into it so if you were here last time we talked about abortion uh, episode 61 we kind of focused on mostly uh, one question that question was when does life begin? And I expressed in that episode that as we go through this series about abortion, I'm going to not be inflammatory about things because it's not about uh, one-liners or zingers that you can get to really trap your opponent uh, or the person that you're having this debate or discussion with, but it's about a consistent, holistic approach to uh, what is life and, and when does life begin and is, is it okay to take the life of another human being? if indeed the unborn are human beings. And that was the central question around which the last abortion episode from two weeks ago centered around. What are the unborn? Because if the unborn are not human, then abortion is perfectly fine and acceptable. However, if the unborn are human beings, then abortion is the murder and the taking of an innocent life. And that's where we run into problems. Another thing we talked about in that episode briefly was the my body, my choice argument, which is perfectly acceptable. But what happens if your choices begin to affect other people? And more importantly, what happens whenever your choice affects someone else's right to live? 
So what if a fetus or an unborn baby is another person? Is your right to have an abortion infringing upon their right to live? And the answer is yes. There are many embryologists and biologists that will say that uh, a life is considered to be a human life when it has human DNA. And that is from the moment of conception because a, uh, an embryo or a fetus is considered to be a human as soon as uh, the sperm and the egg unite to form a unique DNA distinct from the mother, distinct from the father. And from a perspective of development, no matter how uh, underdeveloped an unborn baby is, it is still a human being. Physical features do not make a human. DNA makes a human. Viability outside of the womb also does not equal being human. It is human DNA that is the only indication of being human. The baby is not the mother's body. The baby is not part of the mother's body. It has its own DNA. It is its own individual organism. So that the conclusion that we came to in that episode that was abortion is not a women's right because a true right cannot infringe upon someone else's right to live. So that was a two-minute summary three-minute summary maybe, of, of what we talked about last time. And, and today we're going to talk about it more from a biblical perspective. But I realized in that last abortion episode a couple weeks ago, I forgot to tell you about uh, why, why the timing of this episode. Um, so the Sanctity of Life Day is, is often uh, held and celebrated on January 22nd. Um, so obviously that episode came out like six days after that. Um, but many churches uh, also hold the Sanctity of Life Sunday uh, on a nearby Sunday. And this past year, it was either January 16th or 23rd, uh, depending on who you ask, because I saw two different things. I uh, couldn't get an answer on that. Uh, don't, it's not like an officially recognized you know, national holiday, so that that happens, I guess. Uh, but it's the reason why I brought this topic about when I did. But also, the Supreme Court right now is apparently weighing a decision uh, that that could potentially overturn Roe versus Wade, which is a federal bill that you know enables uh, safe abortions. So if that is overturned, obviously it's on a national level. Uh, that doesn't mean that abortions will immediate be, immediately be illegal everywhere, but it simply means that it's going to be up to individual states to determine their own laws surrounding abortion. And that fits in interestingly into what today's episode is about. So the last episode on abortion, we talked about a little more of a scientific perspective and as I was typing up my notes, I accidentally typed the word scientistic. Um, so that kind of tells you how adept I am at uh, doing science. <laughs> so we got as scientific as, as I can really get, which is like, you know, reading some stuff uh, that people who are way smarter than me wrote. But we saw that science significantly reinforces the idea that a human is a human at the moment of conception because of its unique DNA. And as we've made medical and scientific advances, we can see that we can see the humanity of a fetus from a very early age. And on the reverse side, the flip side of that coin, we can now perceive the inhumanity of certain abortion practices. Now, I wouldn't advise that you do this if you're extra sensitive to this kind of thing, but you can actually go online and look at pictures of what abortion looks like. 
You can see what an aborted baby looks like even in the first trimester of a pregnancy that has been aborted. And I think it would take an insane person, a person who was completely out of touch with reality to not recognize that organism as a human being. Either that person is so committed to a political ideology that they are willing to look at that same image, an image of a human being, a child that has been dismembered and vacuumed out of a womb and say that for the sake of women's rights, this is acceptable. Or maybe it's, it's an induced abortion through a, through a pill um, or a certain uh, medication regime. What reasonable person would, would look at a fetus who had been aborted that was cut off from its life source and expelled into a toilet in some cases and say, yeah, that's totally fine. There's nothing wrong here. Like I said, it fits interestingly into the Roe v. Wade situation that's going on now because that situation is pretty much purely political, right? We've, we've seen that there's a certain side of this, the pro-choice side of this has chosen to turn a blind eye to science, to evidence, to medical advances. And I would argue that in a world without politics, if we didn't somehow politicize this issue like we do so many issues, that any person would look at these images of these aborted babies and be horrified. And any person that would look at such a thing or hear of such a thing could recognize it for, for how vile it truly is. Talking about the Roe v. Wade decision, it's a very political thing now. Uh, there's also a very scientific perspective on abortion that heavily favors the pro-life side. This week, we're going to talk about a biblical perspective on abortion. And some things like Roe versus Wade and the modern narrative of women's rights have taken this thing we call abortion, this issue that we call abortion, which is a very scientific and, and even spiritual or religious argument and have turned it into something political. And I, I think Satan probably delights in things like that. The science overwhelmingly and increasingly over the years goes to bat for the pro-life perspective. And today we're going to get into a biblical perspective that will overwhelmingly point us in a direction where we desire to value and protect the lives of the unborn. Any reasonably thinking person would look at the scientific evidence and come to the conclusion that, yeah, maybe abortion shouldn't happen. I can't see how anyone who would call themselves a student of the Bible could sit down, read it cover to cover, consider it and say, you know what? Yeah, I think according to this, God gave us the right to abort babies and he's okay with it and it's completely fine. So that being said, we've taken this scientific and religious spiritual topic and we've turned it into something political. And it's really telling of kind of where we are politically that politics have so subverted our abilities to think reasonably about anything and to think logically about anything. And I'm not just talking about one political party. It's everybody. If Roe versus Wade gets overturned, there are going to be people that absolutely lose their minds. I'm not going to guarantee anything, but I'm quite sure that there's going to be if, if Roe v. Wade is overturned. There will be riots, there will be looting, there will be upheaval. In the midst of that, people are going to lose their lives. And I think that's a really ironic thing because people about protecting the right to abort babies will die in protests that will probably inevitably turn to violence. You know, we saw the same thing happen with Black Lives Matter. 
uh, most of the marches were peaceful. And then you had some that were intended to be peaceful and you had these groups come in, make them violent. And, and the events that were organized around protecting human lives, human lives were lost. People from both sides, it didn't matter. You know, people would show up to, to, to march in solidarity with Black Lives Matter. They died. People showed up to protest. The protests turned violent. People who did not affirm Black Lives Matter died. All for what? Here's the thing. For people on the political right and people on the political left, we have become so entrenched in our side's beliefs that we're, we're willing to turn a blind eye to, to compassion. We're willing to turn a blind eye to reason and logic. So for instance, for people on the political right, it is okay to grieve the fact and regret the fact that a man like George Floyd was wrongfully killed by a cop, right? Someone who was arrested over a counterfeit bill, who was killed over that counterfeit bill, that's a tragedy. You know, no matter what his life was like in the past, he was not deserving of death because of a counterfeit bill. But that's what he received. So it is okay if you're on the political right to admit that because any reasonable person would admit dying over a $20 bill that you allegedly counterfeited, that's a tragedy. And for people on the political left, it is okay to say and to admit that aborting a baby can be a sad and traumatic experience. And it's okay to not celebrate uh, abortions like they were a birthday party, like they were a fun, liberating experience. Any reasonable person who, who set all politics aside could admit that it is a painful, oftentimes traumatic and horrifying experience to have an abortion. Politics don't have to destroy our reason as human beings, but oftentimes they do. And I, believe me, I hate politics. I absolutely hate them. I think they've made us into unreasonable and cold people, right? And from, from the Christian perspective, people that, that politically typically align on the right, I have seen politics lead people's affections away from God, most often more times than they realize. There are so many people sitting in the pews of our churches that are unknowingly worshiping a political ideology and placing it on the throne where only a holy God belongs. So when it comes to abortion, I could really easily fall into the trap of politics and make this a political conversation. And yes, there are political and societal ramifications and implications of abortion, such as the foster care system such as adoptions. The list goes on and on. I'm not saying that there aren't, but we have to resist the urge to unite around something, politics, that will ultimately divide. I mentioned briefly last time that science can't tell us at the end of the day what's right and wrong. Politics cannot tell us at the end of the day what's right and what's wrong. It's up to us to reasonably take in all the evidence that we've been provided with and to determine what the best course of action is. I don't want to make political an issue that is not political. Abortion is an issue of morality. And here's a spoiler for you. I think, a, I think God has a lot to say about the value of human lives, the least of which are not the unborn. But the main reason I don't want to make this a political discussion is that I don't think politics are going to solve anything. Right? Roe v. Wade has been here forever. 
you know, since the 1970s, and nobody's nobody's happy, right? Even people who are uh, pro-choice, they aren't happy for some reason. And if that gets overturned, they're going to be ticked off, and people who are pro pro-life will probably not be happy either. I don't think politics are going to solve anything. America isn't a theocracy, right? I don't think just because I'm a Christian that doesn't mean that all of our laws should be Christian. Now, I would prefer that that you know that our nation had Christian values, but I don't expect that from the government. I don't expect anyone who is not a Christian to care about the Bible's stance on the sanctity and the value of life. So with that being said, here is my pro-life case from a biblical perspective. And I'll let you know up front that there will be a section later on the image of God that uh, I used a lot of uh, the Bible projects material. So if you think like, wow, that was extra profound, I got it from somewhere else. Okay, so don't don't give me that much credit. But the the, the topic of, of the sanctity of life and abortion, uh, it's an interesting topic because the Bible doesn't give any specific parameters when it comes to the act of abortion, which I feel is really interesting because after doing a little research, I found that the first recorded evidence of an abortion was way back in 1550 BC. So we're talking 1500 plus years before Jesus was even in the picture. So we're talking about some days of some Old Testament prophets. Most of the time these were induced uh, abortions, not surgical, uh, but they were abortions nonetheless. So in the same time of the Old Testament prophets, abortion was likely happening in civilized societies. The only time that, that there's a law recorded that prohibited abortion or mandated punishment for abortions was the Assyrian Code of Asura in 1075 BC. But the punishment was only if a woman had an abortion against her husband's wishes. So it wasn't necessarily a thing, an issue of protecting the life of the unborn, but it was an issue of protecting the husband's dominion over the woman. So abortion, ever since it was introduced or recorded to be introduced uh, over 3,500 years ago, for the large part, it has not been something that has been largely condemned. What I find interesting about this is why is it not in the Bible? Like I said, the Old Testament prophets were in a time where they likely encountered this as a moral issue. Uh, New Testament writers may have been familiar with the concept of abortion, but for whatever reason didn't choose to write about it. There are people called Stoics, which Paul encounters directly in the book of Acts, and they believed that a human fetus was basically the same thing as a plant. It was not a human being until it took its first breath, so they found abortion to be acceptable. And the philosopher Aristotle wrote this. He said the line between lawful and unlawful abortion will be marked by the fact of having sensation and being alive. And Aristotle, for I, I couldn't determine, I couldn't find why he came up with this reasoning, but he said an embryo uh, took 40 days to gain a soul if it was a male and 90 days if it was a female. So don't really know what was going on there. Don't know how he determined that, but that's what he determined. So he said anytime before uh, 40 days, if it's a male, 90 days, if it's a female, you can have an abortion then. But there's also evidence of, of some early church fathers and writers being against abortion. 
and only for abortion in extreme cases where the mother's life was in danger. And you've got to keep in mind that that was a lot more common in those days. They didn't have the medical treatments that we have today. And as you uh, probably are familiar with, I'm probably not introducing you to anything new today as far as scriptures used to uphold the, the sanctity, the value, and the worth of human lives, particularly the lives of the unborn. There's a, there's a famous passage in Psalm 139, starting in verse 13. You've probably heard this one before. It says, For you, referring to God, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Another psalm. This one's a little less cheery, but it says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So there's this moral component there that is evident from the moment of conception. In Job chapter 10, Job says this, he says, You clothed me with skin and flesh. You knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and steadfast love. And then in the New Testament, Paul in Galatians 1.15 says this, But when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. So you've got Paul. I, I'd like to think, I don't have any proof of this, but I like to think that Paul, when writing that, had Psalm 139 in mind. So there's this, this theme throughout Scripture. There's this idea that God, before we were even born, knew us, and that God designed us before we were born. And even before conception, God knew that we would come into existence. And I think that's a really fun conversation, uh, but it can get mind-boggling really fast of like, what is the foreknowledge of God? Does God know whether or not I'm going to drink coffee tomorrow morning? Because that's a pretty minor thing. What about on April 5th, 2066? What am I going to eat for lunch that day if I'm still alive? Does God know those details? So so I don't, it's, that's, that's a huge tangent. We can maybe discuss that sometime, but I'll probably never have enough uh, knowledge or confidence to ever do that on the show. So I don't know. We'll see. So, so there are these, these pictures all throughout the scriptures in the Psalms, in Job, in Galatians even, the New Testament, and several places in the Gospels where Jesus champions children, right? And you have John the Baptist leaping in the womb. So there's, there's these pictures all throughout Scripture that point to the sanctity, the value of life, even an unborn life, even a life that has not yet become independent. But, but here's, something, here's something that I've learned throughout the years, that, that a principle that I try to, to apply to every theological question I have, and that is this. Where does the sanctity and the value of a human life fit into the overarching narrative of the entire Bible? Because here's what we can do. We can point to those above scriptures independently and just say like, yeah, because of this, abortion is wrong. 
But there are even there, there's a story in Exodus 21, and we're going to talk about that uh, on next week's show. If two, it says basically, if two men are fighting and a pregnant woman's belly is hit and it causes the baby to die, uh, there will be no punishment. However, if the woman dies, there will be punishment. So it's basically saying that the the unborn life has lesser value than the woman, right? So some people will will use that. So we can go back and forth with proof texts all day long. And this isn't just true on abortion. It's true on a variety of issues. And and granted, I am of the mind, I do believe that contextually, um, these aren't the, the scriptures that I use today, uh, as well as several others, aren't proof texts. But but it can devolve into that. I believe I do believe that these scriptures fit into the overarching narrative. But what I've learned throughout the years is instead of just finding these one or two places that you can pull from scripture is what does the overarching story of God over the entirety of all of time have to say about this and how does it fit in with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and all of that, I believe, can be summarized in a phrase, and it's a phrase that you've likely heard uh, many times before in your life, but maybe you've never considered what it actually means, and that is the phrase, the image of God. So this phrase came about very early on in, in human history. Kings would often refer to themselves as God or as the image of God. However, there was this one nation that was very unique, and they did not consider their kings to be a god. And that's because they were a monotheistic culture, which means they only believed in one god. Therefore, God couldn't exist in several different iterations as a human king, but he was one god who created the earth and even the larger universe. And he ruled over all of it, not just one specific kingdom. They believed that God could not be reduced into an image, an idol, or even a person like most of their contemporary kingdoms. One image, idol, or person could not contain the image of God. One of their primary beliefs was that they as people should not make images of God because God had already made images of himself. So this nation followed the God who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. They followed a God whose spirits hovered over the face of the waters. They followed a God who said, let there be light, and there was light. He said, let there be waters under the heavens, and there were waters under the heavens. He said, let the earth sprout vegetation, and there was vegetation. He said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens, and the sun and the moon and the stars came into existence. Night and day were now distinct. He said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth over the expanse of the heavens. And let the earth bring forth creatures according to their kinds. And just like that, living creatures in the land, in the sea, and in the air appeared. And finally, the God of this nation said, let us make man in our image. And when the God of this nation created them, he said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. This kingdom, if you didn't already notice, was the nation of Israel. And of course, the above quoted scripture is from the book of Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. All of the things that this God created, he called good. Except for when he created humans, he called them very good. He gave them the authority to rule over and subdue 
the entire earth. God gave them the choice of obeying him and what he calls good, or he left it up to them. If they themselves wanted to choose what was good and what was evil for themselves and follow after that, they had the ability to do so. And of course, they chose their own way of doing things. They determined that they knew better than God knew, so they followed after their own desires. Oftentimes, we get wrapped up in a lot of things in Genesis chapter 1, and we, we kind of miss an important and profound point. You know, a lot of times, a study into the book of Genesis, especially chapter 1 of the book of Genesis, uh, that devolves into arguments about how old is the earth? Uh, are women subservient to men? Is evolution real? Or, or is this a literal creation account? Is it metaphorical? The list goes on and on. But as I've grown to uh, love and appreciate scripture more and more, what I find to be the most profound thing is that Adam and Eve's story is our story as well. Just like Adam and Eve, we too have chosen to follow after our own way and determine for ourselves what is good and what is evil. And just like Adam and Eve, that has often backfired on us. In fact, I would argue that more often than not, that has backfired on us. Adam and Eve introduced sin and brokenness into the world. And a lot of times we blame them for that, but we do the exact same thing. Now, these humans who were created in the image of God left that design because of their own choice. They, they chased after what they thought was good and what God considered to be evil. This was changed, however, when Jesus Christ came and obeyed everything God told him to do. And he ruled over others as a rightful king by serving them. And this was an unprecedented situation. When Jesus came, he could have done it in a variety of ways. He could have done it very dramatically. He could have been a, a, a ruling king. He could have just appeared into the world. But he came as a complete and full human being. Being conceived in a womb and carried by a mother who gave birth to him and raised him and nurtured him. Jesus, like the rest of us, was dependent on his mother for the first few years of his life. Jesus, for the first few months of his life, likely could not utter a word. He had to learn to walk. He was just like us in more ways than one. He did that to remind us that humans were no mistake and we were made to bear the image of God. As Jesus was the image of God, we are created to emulate Jesus and therefore we are designed to be the image of God just like it was in Genesis chapter 1. And because Jesus took that brokenness upon himself, he became what is known as the image of God. And when we trust in Jesus, when we follow Jesus, we are also bound up in the same righteousness. Even though we are well acquainted with sin and brokenness, uh, Jesus' identity becomes our identity as we are hidden with Christ in his righteousness, in his purity, and in his holiness. And when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we too become this image of God restored back into God's design as it was meant to be. And we are called to transform the world by seeking justice, achieving, flourishing, and pursuing holiness. So from the very beginning, humanity has been meant to be in the image of God. In fact, if you're well acquainted with Christian lingo, 
you may consider what I just talked about over the past couple of minutes to be a presentation of the gospel, and I wouldn't argue with you on that. And the gospel is this, it's that we are fallen creatures who chose what we thought was good for ourselves and pursued that over what God considered to be good. That led us into a place of brokenness, and the man, Jesus Christ, came and lived a perfect life, died a death in which he took on all of our sins and rose again, defeating death itself. Now, when we identify with Jesus and are adopted into his family, we receive a new spirit, one that is able to enter into the presence of a holy God, not just for now, but for all of eternity. So, so when we, we relate that to the image of God, well, I say relate, but relate's not even a good word because the gospel, the very message that Jesus Christ came into the world to redeem us all and to rescue us from the ramification of sin, the gospel is inextricably bound up with human beings being created in the image of God. And you may be sitting here and listening, what does all this have to do with abortion? I'm very glad you asked. When God made human beings in his own image, he set them above all other forms of life and over every aspect of what had been created. And just like God was a personal and spiritual being, people are as well. And when God created them, he called them very good. God's creation of human beings was a very intentional act to bring about stewardship for his own beloved creation. Right? He gave humans the most important job he could have given them. He gave human beings the capacity to love him when he didn't give any other created being that ability. Last time we talked about science. Earlier in this episode, we talked about God weaving us together in the womb and knowing us even when our substance was unformed. An unborn child is most certainly a human being. This is where science and faith mesh together to attest to that fact. When we take the life of another human being, which abortion undeniably is doing, we are doing two things. First of all, we are robbing that person of the value, dignity, and worth that has been given to them by their creator, which is a grievous sin. And the second thing we're doing when we take the life of another human being is that we are undermining God's power by insisting that we know what's better for humanity than God by saying that in some way humanity will benefit from this child having never been given the opportunity to be born. Every human being is stitched together by God for a particular work, for the work of restoring earth back to God through Jesus Christ. Obviously, not everybody submits to that work. Just like Adam and Eve, people choose to define good and evil for themselves and and choose to completely turn their backs on what God has called good. And they do this in a variety of ways, any way that you can imagine. I truly do believe that, that abortion is one of these things that humanity has determined as good for, for a, a large portion of human history and largely in our culture today, but God sees as evil. And the thing that kind of frustrates me about American Christianity is kind of this escapism. And I know I've talked about this on the show before, is that we, we, we value the earth too little. We value the, the, the reason why God put us here too little. A lot of times we try to make heaven the goal of our faith 
And if that's the case, hear me out, then abortion isn't all that bad, right? If, if the ultimate goal is just to get to heaven, you know, I do believe that if, if a baby dies before they're able to, to make a conscious decision for Christ, you know, whether unborn or born, I believe in the grace of God that covers that. Right, I believe in a a God who is who is kind enough to understand that, as as He created those those children, those babies. So I do think a a an unborn child who is aborted, or even a, a young baby or a young child who who cannot make the conscious decision to follow Jesus, I think because of God's grace, not because of innocence, right, but because of God's grace, God will allow that child to enter into His presence. And when we have the attitude of, oh, it's all about heaven, then we forget about our vocation here on earth. We forget about why God put us on earth. But God put us on earth. Like I said early, earlier, creating human beings in his image was a very intentional act to bring about stewardship over his creation. And when we forget that, then the sanctity and the value of human life seemingly diminishes as well. So earlier we talked about a gospel story. A major component of the gospel can be summarized in Romans 8, 1. Romans 8, 1 says, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what we need to understand is that there's no sin that is greater than the grace of God given through Jesus Christ. Right? So so a lot of times the, the argument devolves into, oh, Christians just want to uh, bash women who have had abortions. Christians just want to isolate those women who've had abortions and tell them how sinful they were. And yes, I do believe an abortion is a sinful act, but oftentimes it's not just the woman who is complicit in that. Right? There are plenty of people who are complicit in the decision of an abortion. There are many people who are accountable for that. However, forgiveness does exist for those who may have had an abortion. Right? So don't get me wrong. When I say abortion is wrong, this is, this is not the way God intended it to be. But the way God intended things to be were in his design, just like they were in the Garden of Eden. And God sent his very son to restore things back to the way they were in the Garden of Eden. And we aren't there yet. I believe one day that God's going to return and he's going to recreate the heavens and the earth and make them one. And in that day, things will be all that they should be. And, and God d- invites everyone, no matter their sin, no matter their past, God invites everyone to be restored back into that vision because he's a good and a graceful God. So there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And in Christ Jesus, forgiveness for a multitude of sins can occur. So to kind of close up this segment, I'll just point out, that there are abortion advocates that will claim that abortions are an issue of women's rights. And they'll even go as far as to celebrate that. They say that a woman who has an abortion should be hailed as an independent woman, a groundbreaking champion of human rights, the master of their own morality. But what they won't tell you are things like this. Women who have had an abortion are 34% more likely to develop an anxiety disorder than the general population. Women who have had abortions are 37% more likely to experience depression than the general population. Women who have had abortions are 110% more likely to abuse alcohol than the general population 
and women who have had abortions are 155% more likely to commit suicide than the general population. And all of these things are brought about by the shame and the guilt that these women carry as a result of having an abortion, right? Because they're told ahead of time, the, the culture disciples them into thinking like, yes, you're going to be this human rights champion. If you do this, your problem is just going to go away. However, when the fire burns out and the smoke settles, they're left in a place of despair. And it's not this liberating thing like the, like the, the progressive propaganda paints it to be. These things are brought about by shame. Ephesians 5, 11 through 14 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. So my question is, who is really fighting for good? Who is really advocating for women? Is it the people that champion abortion as a woman's right that makes them independent and groundbreaking without telling them of the risks that are involved? It's not about women's rights. It's about upholding an agenda and deceiving whoever you have to deceive to get there. If only you get this abortion, you're going to have the life that you want to have. If you have this abortion, your problem that you have, your perceived biggest problem in your life of an unwanted child will simply go away. You're the master of your own morality if you just eat this fruit. But as it turns out, the fruit oftentimes isn't what it was promised to be. It led to brokenness, separation, and despair. That is deception. That's insidious, it's evil, and it's wicked. And it differs very little from what happened with the serpent in the Garden of Eden. So while this pro-choice movement claims to be pro-women, pro-women's rights, pro-human rights, pro-health care, whatever, however it frames itself Whatever propaganda it purports, at the end of the day, they are not standing up for anyone's rights, but instead pushing an agenda. While a pro-life perspective is saying, hey, let's be restored into the image of God. Let's try to avoid these, these, these side effects such as, such as anxiety, depression, alcohol abuse, suicide. The pro-life perspective is about choosing to bring what is in the darkness into the light. Thank you guys for being here today. Like I said, it's super late at night when I'm recording this. I still got to edit it. I don't have a recommendation for you this week because we're really pressed on time. Uh, just because I want to keep this as close to an hour as I can. And also... I just want to go to bed, so there's no recommendation of the week this week. I had fun. I'm loving this. But for now, that's all the evangelical filth I've got for you. That's a wrap and that's a frat snap. Next time, I promise I'll do just a little bit better. Later. Later.